Well, it's, uh, it's great to be back uh, with you at uh, St. John's, particularly as you're in the news. <laughs> um, it's nice to be among you and to show that you have support from the wider church for all the things that are happening at the moment here. But we're going to speak tonight about and think about the Reformation, post-Tenebras Lux. Post-Tenebras Lux. After darkness, light. That is the motto of the Reformation. Um, it really is the motto of uh, the city of Geneva, who even put it on their coins. Post-Tenebras Lux. After darkness, light. 500 years ago, Europe seemed to be in spiritual darkness. The light of the gospel had been obscured by human traditions, by churchly powers and authorities, and by silly superstitions. But then, the light of truth in the Bible broke through. Not just Martin Luther, but a generation of men and women rediscovered in a powerful way that we are saved solely and completely by faith in Christ alone and his death on the cross. What poured forth was then a wave of impassioned teaching, writing and new church movements that radically altered not just the shape of the church, but the entire course of history. And today this is what we call the Reformation. But what we're actually remembering this year, of course, is the 500th anniversary in what, just about two weeks' time, 500th anniversary of one particular work by one particular reformer, the 95 Theses of Martin Luther. Or to give the work its uh, proper title, A Disputation on the Power of Indulgences. Uh, this single work is often seen as the spark which lit the fire at the very beginning of the Reformation. Luther was actually hoping to just start a debate. That is what theses are. You might, when I say the word theses, you might think of a big academic thesis, a PhD thesis, 100,000 words of in-depth theological uh, argumentation or something. That is not what theses are in the 16th century. They're more like tweets or Facebook statuses, 95 tweets, the 95 tweets. There you go, that would make much more sense, wouldn't it, today? Some of them are a little bit longer than 140 characters, but Luther was so famous, I'm sure they'd have let him have 280. Um, they are deliberately punchy and short statements, deliberately provocative, and aimed at correcting false ideas of the faith that were then in circulation. The only evidence that Luther actually nailed these theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg comes from much later, from those who were not there at the time. In the end, it doesn't really matter though whether this symbolic and seminal moment really happened in quite the way we would like it to have happened uh, and as it does in the films. Because however it first appears, this short work by Luther began the process by which he would end up being tried for heresy and eventually excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church four years later. Soon all of Europe would be divided. Indulgences were the presenting issue, that first troublesome symptom of a more deeply worrying problem. 
they focused on some of the problems of late medieval religion indulgences. This is how it supposedly worked. Jesus and the saints of old had accumulated such a great treasury of merits, a surplus of good deeds, heavenly brownie points, you might say. And the Pope was able to dispense this surplus to other people to help them out of purgatory, either now, if they're already there, they're dead, or in future, you could buy one for yourself to help you get out of purgatory in future. In exchange for, how should we put it, uh, a show of good faith, perhaps, um, a show of charity and uh, uh, devotion from yourself, uh, which could, of course, involve you giving up some money for the privilege. You can see, can't you, why, even though it wasn't necessarily put that way, the, by everybody, that um, indulgences were being sold on the pretext that when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. As uh, Johann Tetzel, the famous seller of indulgences, would put it. And yes, it does rhyme in German as well. <laughs> uh, it's not difficult to see, is it, in this, a sort of rampant commercialization or commodification of salvation lining the pockets of a corrupt and self-serving elite. That elite was headquartered in Italy, so you can see why people like uh, Luther, who's a German, complained of fat Italian cardinals enriching themselves at the expense of us hard-working Germans. There was an element of politics in all of this, and nationalism a desire, how can we put this, to avoid sending our money abroad to a distant bureaucracy when it could be helping the health and prosperity of those at home. But all this, all this was mixed with a much more potent critique of the entire Roman church system, which would prove far more powerful than any local party interests. But there are a couple of things we should note right up front about this whole affair, just to put it into perspective. Firstly, the 95 Theses on Indulgences of October 1517, that was not Luther's first publication. He had been writing and speaking and publishing theological works for several years by this point. He was not a newcomer to the fight in 1517. In some way, it's a very arbitrary date to pick. You see, it's the start of the Reformation. Luther had been saying very similar things for several years already. Secondly, Luther did not consider this issue of indulgences to be the defining issue of the whole Reformation. In his debate with Erasmus on the issue of free will and salvation a few years later, Luther said this to the famous Dutch humanist, he said, I praise and commend you, Erasmus, highly for this, that unlike all the rest, you alone have attacked the real issue. You have not wearied me with irrelevancies about the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and such like trifles. For trifles they are, rather than basic issues, he said. You and you alone have seen the question on which everything hinges you have aimed at the vital spot. You hear that? He's saying, really, when he looks back at it from a few years later, indulgences are an irrelevance. 
The papacy, the role of the Pope in the whole of the church, a small trifling matter. The question on which everything hinges was this. Are we saved by grace alone or not? That is the really important subject for Luther and for the whole of the Reformation. Are we saved by grace alone or not? The Reformation was ultimately not a matter of money or of power or of culture or of politics, but of eternal salvation. But wasn't the whole thing just a gigantic tragedy, you may ask? The whole of a united Western Christendom was suddenly torn apart by religious division and war. People were burned at the stake for this question of religion. Surely all this is a nightmare. There's the map of Europe uh, during the Reformation from about 1560 with Lutherans and Calvinists and Anglicans and Catholics. The whole of Europe is divided. Surely this is a disaster, a tragedy. Now naturally we want to repudiate the violence of those times and we must regret that there was and is division between churches. Though ultimately the Reformation clarified a very necessary distinction between teaching that was leading people astray spiritually and the much more edifying teaching of the Bible, which was released into the world in a language that people could finally understand. There were wars, there were executions, and a noble army of martyrs were tied with chains to a stake and burned alive for their faith because they wanted to read the Bible in English and because they taught against Rome that salvation is by grace alone. When Catholic Queen Mary ascended the throne in 1553 in England, she tried to undo the Reformation that had begun here. She earned her nickname, Bloody Mary, by burning around 300 leading Protestants, both men and women, as heretics, including the Archbishop of Canterbury himself, Thomas Cranmer. Even in quiet corners of neutral countries like Switzerland, there was trouble. Reformers like Calvin and Zwingli, he's a good one for Scrabble, isn't he? Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, if you like Scrabble, you can stick him on a triple letter school, that'd be good, wouldn't it? If you could have proper names, you can't, can you? Zwinglian, that would work. Um, these guys in, in Switzerland brought the reformed faith to cities which democratically voted to embrace it. The Catholic backlash against that was harsh. Zwingli himself died in battle as Catholic forces attacked the army of his home, adopted home, Zurich. They took him, killed him, burned him at the stake and forcibly re-Catholicised whole swathes of Switzerland. Back at home, later on, uh, Elizabeth I reinstalled Protestantism as the operating system here in England. Hooray! But the Pope declared her a bastard heretic, that is, an illegitimate queen, promoting a false religion. She was excommunicated and denied salvation by the Pope. Anybody who obeyed her or recognised her as queen was also excommunicated 
and denied salvation by the Pope. So you see, all of a sudden in Elizabethan England, all Roman Catholics became potential terrorists and assassins because the Pope was essentially giving them permission to depose her from power with his blessing. She's a bastard heretic. You can kill her and have an indulgence for it. So it was no wonder, was it, that as the Spanish sent their armadas and such things against her, uh, the Jesuit priests were often executed in Elizabethan England as traitors. And of course, a little bit after Elizabeth, we also had the gunpowder plot of Guy Fawkes in 1605. Then a little bit later in the 17th century, 1618, a war broke out in Europe which divided the continent, Protestant and Catholic, for 30 years. The Catholic Holy Roman Emperor, the most powerful man in Europe, sought to re-establish his control over Protestant areas and he was fiercely resisted. The Kingdom of Bohemia, which is now the Czech Republic, elected a Protestant to be their king and the emperor was not happy about this dynastic politics obviously came into it as well and the great powers were then all sucked in to a war this 30 years war here in the center of europe you can see how confusing it was resulted in around 8 million casualties now, the Roman Catholic writer Brad Gregory says in his book on the executions of Christians during the 16th century, that Christians were so vehemently, uh, so vehemently defended the doctrines that divided them because of their shared convictions about what was at stake. Christianity was not a tissue of human invention, he says, but the authoritative response to God's revelation. So they were vehemently defending things because of what they agreed on, actually. They agreed that Christianity was not a made-up religion, but something given to us by God. This was true for both sides. It is why they were willing to die and to kill. What he's saying there in that quote is that the Christian faith is not ours to invent and to mould according to our own preferences and desires. It is a revealed faith spoken by God and getting it wrong puts our eternal destiny at stake. It is only because people now no longer believe in God or in eternity that our culture finds this so difficult to understand. The differences of five centuries ago are seen as minor, as not worth suffering for by a more secular age, which cares more for establishing its own definitions of righteousness in the here and now than in living to please a benevolent creator. However, looking back at all this, Europe was never an entirely peaceful place for the previous thousand years before the Reformation either. And there had been an ongoing battle for centuries between popes and princes stretching back a long way and various movements for reform and renewal of the church. So despite some superficial similarities, this was not some unfortunate Brexit either, 
with England making a mess of some peaceful and prosperous harmony uh, in the middle of Europe. No, Germany was divided. France was divided. Scandinavia was divided as the gospel flooded in to the whole of Europe. So you see, none of this was directly or solely caused by Luther himself or by Protestantism as such. One man did not cause all the ensuing deaths and devastation. Indeed, Luther explicitly repudiated violence as a means of spreading his ideas. He was not, he was not, as some might lead you to believe on the BBC, a jihadi thirsting for a holy war against the Pope. He was not a terrorist intent on blowing up St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, which is what was being paid for by all those indulgences. Now, in a sermon about love and law, Luther talks about the Roman mass and how it must be abolished as a work of supposed merit. He says, yet Christian love should not employ harshness here, nor force the matter. No one should be dragged away from it by the hair, for it should be left to God and his word should be allowed to work alone without our work or interference. Why? Because it is not in my power or hand to fashion the hearts of men as the potter moulds the clay and fashion them at my pleasure. I can get no further than people's ears. Their hearts I cannot reach. I cannot, nor should I, force anyone to have faith. That is God's work alone who causes faith to live in the heart. So we, you see that? We transform the church, not with harshness, but with patient teaching of God's word. When he says in that quote that we do this without our work or interference, that God does it without our work or interference, he doesn't mean without, um, that it all happens without us teaching or persuading or planning. What he means is clear, that we should not argue for Christian things in unchristian ways, by force or by some kind of cacophonous screeching at people. He actually uses his own reformation in Wittenberg as an example of what he means. He says, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, he says, but never with force. I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly, greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. It's interesting, isn't it, to see him drinking beer there? When you go looking for these interesting memes of Luther drinking beer on the internet, it's funny the kind of things that you can find. Um, <laughs> but the most important thing here is that line where Luther says, I did nothing. The word did everything. It was preaching and teaching and writing the word of God that was behind the Reformation, not force. But what if Luther had chosen some other way of reformation? What if he had gone the way of harshness? He actually says this, he said, Had I desired to foment trouble 
I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany. Indeed, I could have started such a game that even the emperor himself would not have been safe. But what would that have been? Mere fool's play. I did nothing. I let the word do the work. What do you suppose is Satan's thought when we try and do the thing by kicking up a row? Satan sits back in hell and thinks, ha, what a fine game the poor fools are up to now. But when we spread the word alone and let it alone do the work, that distresses him. For it is almighty and it takes captive the hearts. And when the hearts are captured, the work will fall of itself. That's why he says it's incumbent upon us, even in the midst of a desperate situation, to see it through gently and bring everything to an orderly conclusion. Now, all that being said, and I think that's very important to say that, Luther wasn't exactly a paragon of virtue in his use of language against others, particularly. He had something of a, um, what the Americans call a potty mouth, uh, you might say. Uh, but he explicitly repudiated violence and force as a method of spreading his true faith. Um, now, what we might talk a bit about, his failings, the tragedy of Martin Luther's personal failings. He had something of a potty mouth, I would say. He reveled in being an uncultivated fellow, as he put it. Some of the Pope's teachings he described as farts out of his stinking belly. Okay, it's supposed to make us amused, but <laughs> this is what he was saying. He could describe certain Catholic institutions and practices with which he heartily disagreed as an illusion, an evil odour, stinking worse than the devil's excrement. Charming, isn't it? Charming. Hardly ecumenical or diplomatic. Um, I did write an article earlier this year about Luther's um, potty mouth and his use of this sort of rhetoric. I wanted to call it the 95 Theses, <laughs> but they wouldn't let me. So if you want to look it up, um, it's, it's called When Scatology Informs Theology, The Bowels of the Reformation. Um, I think that gets it across. Now, it can be amusing, and there's a Luther Insulter app that you can get uh, online. Ergofabulous.org, I think it is, and it gives you one of those quotes, you know, you are the fart from the devil's bowels, and then you press a button, insult me again, and it gives you another one, and it, and it even tells you in the footnote exactly where it comes from in Luther's work, so um, I, I recommend that to you uh, for your own personal use, but not to use on Twitter or Facebook or in a debate with a friend, because I don't think these are the things that we should uh, necessarily praise him for. Another thing that is a tragedy that we shouldn't praise him for is that Luther was highly anti-Semitic. His first book on the Jews um, was not too bad. Jesus was a Jew, he says. We need to understand Jews and it will help us understand the Bible if we do so. Um, we must tell the Jews the gospel of their Jewish Messiah. Let's, let's tell them so on and so on. But in 1543, much later in his life, he wrote a dreadful book called On the Jews and Their Lies. I wanted to read this book a few years ago, so I went into Amazon and, um, and bought it, which was a mistake, because what is it going to do when you buy it from Amazon? It's going to say, people who, who bought this also bought. <laughs> and there was all sorts of stuff, you know. And, and that's the cover of the book. The original cover there I've put up in the middle, 
um, which just gives you the, the title in German. But then the other cover with a sort of stereotypical caricatured ugly Jew on the front. I couldn't read this book on the train journey that I'd wanted to read it on because of that, because I didn't want people to see that I was reading this book. It felt like I was reading Lady Chastley's Lover or something, something I should not be reading um, on the train. So I got another book and put it around it in order, to, in order to try and read what Luther was saying. And it's as bad on the inside as it is on the outside. He advocates persecution, burn down their synagogues, destroy their books, and so on. It is full of that filthy language as well that I just talked about. Now, he wasn't the only one around at the time who felt this way. He was a man of his times, but that's no excuse, really. He should have known better. The Bible that he was so keen on should have warned him against that move from uh, what I would call theological anti-Judaism, which is good, which is fine. Hopefully, if you're all Christians, you're theologically anti-Judaism. He crosses the line from that into outright racism and violence. So the Reformation is a tragedy for all of these sorts of reasons. It'd be nice, wouldn't it, if we could all just get along despite all our religious differences and other kinds of differences. But you know, the fault in all of this doesn't lie with Protestantism or even with religion on its own as a thing. Put it all into perspective. The great secular regimes of just the last hundred years rejected Christianity and religion altogether. But Nazi Germany... Soviet Russia, Communist China, and Pol Pot's Cambodia were not exactly paragons of peace, love, and harmony for their populations or on a world stage. It is a tragedy that there was so much bloodshed in the 16th and 17th centuries, and religion was often the pretext for it. But this is all part of a much longer story that goes back to the fall of a human race and the first murder of Abel by his brother Cain, which graphically illustrated the depths of sin, first introduced into the world by the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Now, religion was not uninvolved in that primeval conflict between Cain and Abel either, but its real cause is ultimately the same as that which has brought misery to the human race ever since we listened to the serpent and doubted God's word in Eden. Both Catholic and Protestant churches have to recruit their members from the fallen human race. Well, let me just pause at that point uh, as we've talked about the tragedies or some of the tragedies of the Reformation. See if you've got questions or comments or Rotten tomatoes or other things that you'd like to throw. Uh, pieces of dead cat, perhaps. George Whitfield spoke, didn't he? And when in the 18th century, he spoke just down the road from here. There's a little plaque, isn't there? A little statue down there. When he was speaking, uh, he sometimes reports that people climbed the trees next to him and urinated on him. Uh, and others blew trumpets while he was speaking to distract people. And at one point, somebody did throw a piece of a dead cat at him. So I expect all these things when I come to Tunbridge Wells. 
With that being said, have you thought of any questions or comments or things that you'd like to ask about further, any more details? Yes? Elizabeth I might have the history wrong there, I might not be heard like somebody else. Wasn't that a, a tragedy as well? Within... Uh, you're thinking of the tragedy of 1662, which would be a great name for a book. Google that later. The uh, <laughs> tragedy of 1662 about the, the ejection and persecution of the Puritans from the Church of England. Um, by, by Lee Gatiss, published uh, by Latimer <laughs> Trust, available in all good bookshops, very reasonably priced. No, so that comes a bit later in the story, a uh, hundred years after Elizabeth, really. Yeah. Would you like to elaborate, Say again? Would you like to elaborate? Would I like to elaborate? See my published work. No, um, <laughs> yes, um, well, well, you have to tell quite a long story to get there, but again, it's a religious... Um, Discussion and when the, the monarchy is restored in 1660, uh, a whole lot of people come back with King Charles II and uh, they re establish um, the Church of England in the way they want it to be, not the way the Puritans would like it to be, and they then kicked out the Puritans or made it extremely difficult for them to stay. And the vast majority of Puritan, evangelical, Calvinistic type people left. Not all, and many of them were able to come back later um, because of the particular way it was all set up. But yeah, that, that was a disaster. About 2,000, two between 1,000 and 2,000 people, ministers, were kicked out of the Church of England and persecuted. But you should have, in, ask me back another time and I'll tell you about that. <laughs> there must be an anniversary at some point we can you know, pin it to. <laughs> can I just ask about, um, thinking about Jesus' words about Herod and... Pharisees and people talking about the pro-circumcision party. Is there a place for people to have a sharp-edged tongue when they're talking about authority who are leading people astray? Yeah. So um, Jesus calls Herod that fox. Um, and, and Paul says, I wish my opponents would go and emasculate themselves because they're talking about circumcision all the time. Um, yes, well, I think given that Jesus and Paul both do that, that, that is an interesting thing for us to reflect on. But if you reflect on the actual precepts given to us in the, in the Bible, rather than just thinking we can take their examples and copy Jesus and the Apostle to the Gentiles, and we, we, we're in the same position, aren't we? No, <laughs> we're not in the same position as the Lord Jesus or the Apostle Paul. If we look at not their example, but in those two specific instances, but the precepts they left us, Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Uh, Paul says, heap burning coals on their head by being nice to them. And um, the Lord's servants, that's ministers, I guess, those who are serving him in the church, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach them. Those who oppose him, he must, anyone know? 2 Timothy chapter 2, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct so, yes, Paul may have broken his own advice or had permission to do so at some point with that comment. But I think when we're thinking about how should I respond to false teaching and things happening in the church, there's a lot for us to do in 2 Timothy 2 as well in terms of teaching, not being quarrelsome ourselves, being gentle. There's some stuff in 2 Timothy 3 as well about avoiding charlatans. So we have to avoid them too. But, yeah, I think it's better for us to think about the, the precepts given to us rather than thinking we can just copy Jesus. 
otherwise we'd be getting whips together and entering Canterbury Cathedral or something. Um, that's not me suggesting that, okay? <laughs> Just for the record. Yes. I will say something a bit about that near the end. So come back to me if I, what I say doesn't give you enough. But I, I do have some stuff on that in the next section. There was a counter-reformation where they tried to respond. Though some people object to calling it a counter-reformation. So we, we were already trying to reform our church before these Protestants came along. We're not just countering them. We're continuing our own reformation. Um, and there was a big council, the Council of Trent where the Roman Catholic Church solidified its opposition to the Reformation, anathematized and excommunicated those who held Protestant views, um, and, and that became a hardening of confessional lines between Catholic and Protestant, and that was the end, really, of the, at any attempts to get back together. But I will say some more, a little bit about that in a, in a while, so come back to me if it's not enough. Any other questions? Go on. Hello. Uh, where does the word Protestant come from? It's people who protest, of course. People, Luther's protest against the church. Now, in, in the early days of the Reformation, Luther and his followers would have been also described as evangelicals, as they were in England as well. Um, the earliest reformers were called evangelicals because they were gospel people. Evangelion is Greek for gospel. So it's just one of a number of words. The name Lutheran wasn't used until much later and it was of course used as a put down as a swear word or you're a lutheran they'd prefer to call themselves evangelical we're gospel people we're good news people but protest is also where that comes from um yeah when the queen visited ireland years ago um, um people saw that as a a significant act yes. that she was well they interpreted it in all sorts of ways we don't really know what she was doing but um, there is so much ignorance today about the reason why we are a Protestant nation and it seems to me that lots of people think oh well you know Catholics are our friends really we, we, we just need to forget all that happened those years ago and just get on with each other now and the Queen shaking the hands with the um, was seen as a great act of unification. Uh, how, how do you think we should respond to that? Again, I will come back to that near the end because I have some further things to say about how things are going forward. I'll quote the Pope because the Pope gave a speech um, about the Reformation of Sermon Homily just recently um, in which he commented on some of these things. So I'll come back to that. But I think a lot of people are very ignorant, not just about the religious issues, but the political ones that are wrapped up and the national, national issues you know, nationalism issues and issues of social, economic, as well as religious power that's wrapped up in all of those. There's a massive history in Ireland. Um, you know, in Switzerland, they had debates in, you know, everyone in the city would get together like this, okay? And we'd have legators speaking for the Protestants. You should be Protestant as a city because blah, blah, blah. And then you get a cardinal, and he'd come in and he'd say, you should stick with us because blah, 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 blah. And then you'd all go away and vote. And whichever way you voted, that's the way the city went. That seems to me a very um, 
civilized way of doing things. That's how, they, that's how it worked in, in Switzerland. That isn't how it works everywhere else. Uh, in other places, there's more violence and stuff. But even, as I say, in Switzerland, even in Switzerland, there were armies killing each other over these things as well. So there's always more wrapped up in it. But we'll come back to that because it is an ongoing issue, isn't it? Has the Catholic Church dispensed with indulgences? No. <laughs> no. You would have thought, I mean, many people think, oh, of course, they'd have changed by now because the Protestant, obviously, Protestants obviously put them right on that, so they won't stick with that. But if you, it's all still there. They still believe in what it says in the Council of Trent. Um, and the, the most recent catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, which you can you know, buy as a, as a big fat book, which gives you the official Roman view on everything, it's still in there. You can get indulgences for all sorts of things. Um, watching particular televised events with the Pope, going to co particular conferences. Uh, plenary indulgence was offered for a youth conference, I think, in Brazil just a few years ago. Um, that's lots of time off purgatory just for getting to that conference. They've got to pay for the upkeep of St. Peter's as well. Well, yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think it's done in quite such a commercialised way, perhaps. They may have learned some lessons about that. Um, yeah. Though, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from Purgatory Springs, would go rather well on Twitter, I think. It's definitely under 140 characters, isn't it? No, they haven't, they haven't changed on that or in many other ways, either. In fact, it's got worse in many other ways in terms of what they think about Mary and what they think about the Pope and what they think you're supposed to think about the Pope. So now it is a dogma of the Catholic Church that you must think that the Pope is infallible. Whereas before, many of them thought he was, but now they've made it a dogma that you must believe that. That's since the Reformation. Since the Reformation, there have been all sorts of things said about Mary as well which you now have to believe in to be saved, in their view. That she bodily was assumed up into heaven at the end of her life, rather than dying in the way, the way of everyone else. That is a Catholic doctrine. That she herself was immaculately conceived without sin. So, yes, in some ways the Roman Catholic Church has got worse, not better. Though I think now you are allowed to read the Bible in English, if you're a Catholic. You laugh, but that wouldn't have been the case, what, 60, 70 years ago? You'd have still had Latin Mass and Latin Bibles. So, but we'll come on to that. Any other questions? Did Justin Mulvey apologise for the Reformation recently? Did he apologise for the Reformation? He might have done, but if he did, I was probably had my hands over my ears going, la, 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 I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear that. Um, we did have a debate in General Synod about the Reformation. I don't remember him apologising. I hope he didn't. Because of what I'm about to say about the Reformation. We can all lament the violence and that things went badly wrong in so many places. We can all lament that there are divisions in the church. But why are the divisions there? Well, we'll come to that. Yeah. It's a strange thing nowadays as well, isn't it? I mean, Justin Welby wasn't around at the Reformation, as far as I'm aware, was he? <laughs> and yet he's been asked to apologise for it by some people. But that is a strange modern thing, where we all feel like we have to apologise for things that we never had any part in. Um, I apologise for the Battle of Hastings. 
I may have been on the losing side of that. My ancestors are probably Anglo-Saxons or, Anglo or so that were killed off by the French. So, well, you Frenchies should apologise or something. I don't know. That's how it goes. Well, let's think instead not about the tragedies of all these things. Let's think about the triumphs of the Reformation, okay? Um, you can see why many people dislike the Reformation, can't you? Just from the things I've touched on. If it's something to do with Luther, that nasty man. Not to mention all those people who say that it only happened because Henry VIII wanted a divorce. You Anglicans, you're only Church of England because Henry VIII had an overactive libido. Um, you heard that? You can see, can't you, when you put it into a bigger context, that these, these things don't really stick, but this is what people say. Was it all necessary? Wasn't everything just fine and dandy already before 1517? Well, the traditional view of the late medieval church was that it was one of ignorance and corruption and a growing anti-clericalism replaced by a rediscovered gospel, Bibles in English and liturgies in English and increased lay devotion. That's been the sort of standard picture. You may have heard that when you... That may be the picture of the Reformation you were given at school. Um, GCSE or A-level, sorry, O-level um, history that you might have been taught. That view of things has been challenged in recent years by, amongst others, Professor Eamon Duffy at Cambridge. In fact, all, the entire Reformation history department in Cambridge is staffed by Roman Catholics. Almost, almost. But some of the major people are Roman Catholics, and this is their... Their sort of um, their deal. Now, Eamon Duffy's book, *The Stripping of the Altars*, painted a picture of a vibrant and beloved medieval church, unjustly attacked and denuded by evil Henry VIII and his Protestant successors. So that kind of overturns the traditional view. There was nothing wrong with the Catholic Church. People spent a fortune on it. They loved it. They adored it. it there was no anti-clericalism. People were not unhappy with it. Um, so that traditional picture must go. More recently, uh, Professor G.W. Bernard, who is the Vice President of the Royal Historical Society, had a, a book out where he looked at the uh, medieval church on its own terms, which I think gives us a much more nuanced picture of what was going on. Bernard claims that much of the recent writing on, the, on, on that period, particularly of the Eamon Duffy School, doesn't tell you the full story and indeed, it leaves the subsequent Reformation inexplicable. Because why was there a Reformation if everyone loved the church? You know, if that was the case, well, why did the Reformation happen? So Bernard says, well, yes, there was some vitality in the church of the late medieval period, yes. But within that, there were some serious and substantial vulnerabilities as well, which had been ignored and played down by that more Catholic apologetic. Now, this is not to make um, the break with Rome and the eventual triumph of Protestantism in various places an absolute inevitability. It wasn't inevitable. But Bernard places provocative question marks over the revisionist way of looking at things and allows us to ask again, what are the proper criteria for judging the late medieval background? to the Reformation. One of the greatest vulnerabilities, to, to use his language, for the church in this period was the population's ignorance of the Christian message. Yes, they had sculptures and stained glass 
and a liturgical calendar and pilgrimages and holy days. But the form of faith that this engendered was wide open to Protestant critiques. Professor Bernard speaks of an underlying pagan come magical religious understanding upon which Christianity had been more or less superimposed. That's what it was like. You know, they were pretty much pagans with a Christian veneer. No real grasp of the true Christian message as described in the Bible and followed by the early church. Come a bit later to, uh, sorry, a bit earlier, we go back to the 19th century and the great, Brit- uh, great British uh, uh, bishop, J.C. Ryle, who in his usual way speaks about the religion of England before the Reformation like this. In his book, The Distinctive Principles for Anglican Evangelicals, available on the Church Society website, he has a chapter on what do we owe to the Reformation. And he says, to sum it all up in a few words, the religion of our English forefathers before the Reformation was a religion without knowledge, without faith, without lively hope, a religion without justification, regeneration and sanctification, a religion without any clear views of Christ or the Holy Ghost. Except in rare instances, this is Ryle now, okay, listen to him, go for it. In rare, except in rare instances, it was little better than an organised system of Mary worship, saint worship, image worship, relic worship, pilgrimages, almsgivings, formalism, ceremonialism, processions, prostrations, bowings, crossings, fastings, confessions, penances, absolutions, masses, and blind obedience to the priests. It was a huge higgledy-piggledy of ignorance and idolatry, serving an unknown God by deputy. The Reformation, he says, delivered England from the most grovelling, childish, superstitious practices in religion. I allude especially to the worship of relics. If you buy the book and see, he then goes on and lists some of the most amazing, um, ridiculous things that were being worshipped as relics and being um, used in, in worship. Wonderful as these things may seem, we must never forget, he says, that Englishmen at that time had no Bibles and knew no better. A famishing man in sieges and blockades has been known to eat rats and mice and all manner of garbage rather than die of hunger. A conscience-stricken soul famishing for lack of God's word must not be judged too harshly if it struggles to find comfort in the most debasing superstition. Superstition is in capital letters. Only let us never forget, this was the superstition which was shattered to pieces by the Reformation. Remember that it was a deliverance. Well, that's true. Many were delivered from these things only to then have their bodies delivered over to the flames. We must never forget how many suffered and died to establish the Reformation, particularly in our country. It is an axiom of Christian faith that God's power is made perfect in weakness and that what people often mean for harm, God can turn to good. And so it is that it's in the tragedies of the Reformation era that we can also observe its triumphs. This is powerfully illustrated 
in one of the best books to come out of the Reformation that every single church in the land was meant to have a copy of. Do you know what that was? Apart from the Bible, every church was meant to have Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read there the stories of Archbishop Cranmer who recanted his Protestantism and then repented of his recantation as he went to the stake and gave a brave speech. Read of the deaths of good Bishop Ridley, a good Bishop Latimer, the anniversary of whose deaths was on Monday this week. Their stories are well known. They died to light a candle in England that would never be put out. Fox also writes of some brave Protestant ladies. Now, when these foresaid good women were brought to the place in Colchester where they would suffer, they fell down upon both their knees and made their humble prayers unto the Lord, which thing being done, they rose and went to the stake joyfully and were immediately thereunto chained. And after the fire had compassed them about, they went with great joy and glorious triumph, giving up their souls, spirits and lives into the hands of the Lord. Thus, gentle reader, writes Fox, God chooses the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. Well, what did this noble army of martyrs give their lives for? In the midst of all the tragedies, we can observe the triumphs of the Reformation. This is what they died for. Reformation theology is often summed up as five solas. You come across these? Many of you would have seen these before. It was a, and sola, of course, is the Latin, sola, alone, only. It's uh, sola gratia, by grace alone, through faith alone, sola fide, which um, we um, have in Christ alone, solo Christo, or solus Christus, which we know through scripture alone, sola scriptura, and all to the glory of God alone, soli deo gloria. It was Bach, I think, wasn't it, who used to sign many of his um, musical manuscripts with SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, at the end, because he was a good Protestant. Now, I'm not sure that it was ever summarised in quite such a neat, formulaic way like that at the Reformation itself. It's like many of these things. They're invented later as kind of useful teaching tools. Five points is a nice, convenient five, because we've got five fingers, haven't we? So... You can do five points of uh, the Reformation and the five points of Calvinism, you know, that kind of thing. It's a heuristic device to teach people, but I don't think it was ever summarised in quite such a neat way at the time. And there were other issues of immense importance at the time which are not accounted for in this outline. For example, many of our English reformers went to the stake not for justification by faith alone, but because they said that the bread and wine in communion are bread and wine alone. And that we feed on Christ there only in our hearts by faith, not literally and physically. But no one's invented a solar for that. Um, but that was so important to Cranmer, Ridley and Latimer that that's why they died. Because they wouldn't give up that doctrine. If they kept justification by faith alone and admitted that transubstantiation was true, they would have lived. They died because of what they thought about the Lord's Supper. 
Yet clearly, when it comes to our understanding of salvation, these traditional five solas are extremely important. Let's think then a little bit about sola scriptura, the way the Reformation looked at the Bible and recovered the Bible for the church. The Apostle Paul says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That verse, I think, sums up why Protestants had such a holy enthusiasm for the Bible. It is not so much an inspired book as it is expired, breathed out by God. But as well as being the word of God himself, the Bible is also a terrifically useful book. It was given to us in order that we might use it. It is an infallible and inerrant instrument for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training us. Which is why the reformers of the 16th century were so excited about the Bible, both translating it and in teaching it. It's why William Tyndale spends such time and energy in the dangerous work of translating the Greek and Hebrew original texts into English and then smuggling them into England. You know, Tyndale will have a big smile on his face to come to Tunbridge Wells today and find Bibles on every table in English that you can all read. And many of you probably have read them all, read the whole thing many times. That wouldn't have happened before the Reformation. It happened because of people like Tyndale smuggling it in and being good scholars to translate it. Because there was a message from God and people needed to hear it in a language that they could understand, not just in faulty ancient Latin, which was a language reserved for the elite. And this is why people like Thomas Cromwell, yes, of Wolf Hall fame, and Archbishop Thomas Cranmer made sure that every church in the land was eventually furnished with an English Bible. Cranmer said, the scripture of God is the heavenly meat of our souls. Isn't that lovely as a phrase? The heavenly meat of our souls. As he preached in one of the official Church of England homilies, let us diligently search for the well of life in the books of the Old and the New Testament and not run to the stinking puddles of human traditions devised by human imagination for our justification and salvation. I love these guys. They're not dusty and boring and difficult to read, you know. It's like, don't go there, it's a stinking puddle. You want to come over here for the beautiful, gorgeous honey and meat for our souls. You know, these guys knew how to preach. And so he says these books of the Old and New Testament, ought to be much in our hands, in our eyes, in our ears, in our mouths, but most of all, in our hearts. One of the best things, I think, about the Reformation is not in its big characters and its dramatic events. It is in the return of warm-hearted, pastorally applied biblical preaching to the church. I discovered that recently for myself in, an, in a new way, really, for me, as I was putting together this book, 90 Days in Genesis, Exodus, Galatians and Psalms, with Calvin, Luther, Bullinger and Cranmer, four of the 16th century reformers. It's a resource I put together to help ordinary people read the Bible alongside those reformers. And, you know, they are observant 
and gifted teachers of the word with a passion for understanding the Bible and passing on its world-changing insights that God had shown them. As I dusted down their old commentaries to see if there was anything I could find in there of value for today, I felt I'd found, you know, undiscovered treasure in what they wrote. The reformers wanted to make sure that the church always had the Bible at the heart of its life and its doctrine. The 39 Articles of Religion, the Church of England's Confession of Faith, contains this crystal clear emphasis. For example, in Article 6, the 39 Articles say, Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation, so that whatever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of anyone, that it should be believed as an article of the faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. In other words, scripture, what you've got on those tables, is utterly sufficient. Just as Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3. That is what will make you wise for salvation in Christ. It alone can lead the way and contains everything you need for eternal life and present godliness. Nothing ought to be demanded of us, which scripture itself does not demand. And no burden should be imposed on us, which is not imposed on us by Scripture. You see, at one stroke, that way of looking at things completely undercuts all those pardons and pilgrimages and priestcraft and relics and all those other erroneous doctrines of the late medieval church. It's explosive. Part of the definition of church, according to the English reformers, was that it is a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached. And yet, that church cannot ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written, the articles continue to say. Neither may they expound one part of scripture as if it was contradictory or repugnant to another. This is triumphant Reformation doctrine, saying that scripture is our supreme, coherent and consistent rule, both in salvation and in ordering our lives together as the church, rather than the changeable diktats of merely human authorities. Cranmer taught that God's holy word is one of the chief and principal benefits given and declared to mankind here on earth. That thing on the table in front of you, that is one of the principal benefits given to mankind on earth. So he exhorts us, then let us night and day muse, meditate, contemplate the scriptures. Let us ruminate and as it were, chew the cud that we may have the sweet juice, the spiritual effect, kernel, taste, honey, comfort and consolation of them. Yet so many churches that I visited over the last few years, are more content with kind of milky sermonettes of 10 minutes and a perfunctory fast food daily diet. Only solid meat in our pulpits and in our daily Bible reading, only solid meat will bring solid reformation in the 21st century. See, it's easy for us to give lip service to this sort of idea, but to actually drag our heels and lag behind in our lives 
As Luther says in his commentary, he noticed this in his commentary on the epistle to the Galatians. He said, at the first, when the light of the gospel began to appear after such a great darkness of human traditions, you see, post-Tenebras Lux, when the light appeared, many were zealously bent to godliness. They heard sermons greedily and they had the ministers of God's word in reverence. But now, when the doctrine of piety and godliness is happily reformed with so great an increase of God's word, many which seemed before earnest disciples become despisers and very enemies. They not only cast off the study of God's word and despise its ministers, but they also hate all good learning. It's worth searching our hearts and looking at our own church today on these points. Have we grown so accustomed in the Church of England, in St John's Tunbridge Wells, in other churches, to the great benefits given to us by the Reformation that we've started to take them all for granted? The Bible is readily available in a multitude of different English translations, freely available on the internet, on our phones. You can even read it on your iWatch if you want to. Yet we are in danger of drifting away from a serious study of God's word and all good learning because we've neglected to drink from these fountains of life and value them as deeply as we ought. As the writer to the Hebrews says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Archbishop Cranmer also produced one of the most enduring legacies of the Reformation. In 1549, he published the Book of Common Prayer. The purpose of this was to enable the ordinary people of England both to hear God's word and to respond to him in prayer in their own heart language. You see, no longer were priests to be hidden away behind rude screens of wood with their backs to the congregation, mumbling hocus pocus in Latin. Because that's what it would have been like. Imagine we, I've done this in my front room sometimes with my uh, Cambridge students. We're going to recreate it now. Here is a pre-Reformation church. You are a pre-Reformation church. I am the priest, just because I want to be. Um, this up here is my altar. Okay, this is the altar. Between us, I'm going to erect a large screen, a wooden screen, called a rude screen, because it has a cross, a crucifix on the top of it. You are kept at a distance. You might be able to see some of what I'm doing. I don't have a microphone on in the 16th century. I'm going to go up here, and with my back turned to you, I am going to lead the service pattern. Master Quiers and Chaley, Sanctification, and then to... I might sing some of it, I suppose. And then you had feeling to me, fearful and trustful, seeking to be honest and confident. Are you feeling involved? Are you enjoying this? No? No? Those of you who can speak Latin are feeling smug now, aren't you? No? Nobody wants to join in? So you can't, can you? Because I'm up there, I've got a back to you, you're not really being invited to be involved. You're watching passively something that I'm doing on your behalf in a language that you have no, no access to mostly. Some of you might, in a, in a late medieval church, many of you might have had a smattering of Latin or recognised some of it. You can teach a child to recite Latin. My kids 
can all recite the Lord's Prayer in fluent ecclesiastical Latin. You can test them if you like, but they can. But you know, it is another thing entirely to pray it from the heart. And the Reformation made it possible and normal for us to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And to declare with feeling, because we know what we're saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Cranmer's prayer book sought in its beautiful, sonorous English words and in its simplicity of choreography to teach the doctrines of the Reformation faith. The BCP was a hugely effective evangelistic tool for a liturgical church-going people. It was designed to teach those who were used to coming to church every Sunday and used to hearing something of a liturgy. It designed to teach them a more reformed and Protestant way to approach God with freedom and with confidence. This was a strategy that made a huge amount of sense in a time and culture where everyone goes to church on a Sunday and on a holy day. It's majestic language, the BCP, passionately pleaded with people to engage their hearts in serving a merciful God who sent his son to save wretched sinners by faith alone. It expounded that gospel every single time and urged congregations to respond from the heart. Going back then to what Luther said to Erasmus, the other triumph of the Reformation um, in our last few minutes was the doctrine of salvation sola gratia, salvation by grace alone. You see, the popular theology of the 16th century was this, facientibus quod in se est Deus non denegat gratiam. As you know. Of course, it's in Latin, because theology was. God will not deny grace to those who do what is in them. God helps those who help themselves. Do your best, leave to God the rest. You do your bit, he'll do his bit. Facientibus quod in se est Deus non denegat gratiam. But then along comes Martin Luther, and he starts reading Romans. And he realises that what Paul's saying is that if we do what is in us, if we do our best, if we do our bit, then all we can ever do is sin. Because sin is not just a naughty act or an ingrained habit. It is a rebellious state. And whether you are a puritanical, Bible-wielding, fundamentalist extremist, as I know you all are here in Trump Jazz, or a raving secular humanist, it doesn't matter whether you're one or the other. We have complete equality in our diversity. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, says Paul in Romans 3, verse 23. Every one of us is under sin. We are captured by it. We are under the power of sin and condemned to pay the price for it. So none of us, not a single one of us, will be acquitted by God, but speechless before him 
on the day, the great and terrible day of judgment. And Luther said in his um, commentary on Romans that was published even before the 95 Theses, the chief purpose of this letter is to break down, to pluck up and to destroy all wisdom and righteousness of the flesh. This includes all the works which in the eyes of people or even in our own eyes may be great works. No matter whether these works are done with a sincere heart and mind, this letter, Romans, is to affirm and state and magnify sin. No matter how much someone insists that sin does not exist. And he says, when we try to do what is in us, to do our best, to do our bit, all we can do is sin. Because even a work which to all... That's the wrong way around. Go back. Uh, Even a work which to all outward appearances is a good work... Inwardly, it is sin if we are unconverted. It may look good on the outside. It may be a work of stunning quality. It may embody crucial social values. But inwardly, it is sin. So if we are to be saved and born again, it must be by grace alone. Because our good works and religious actions simply will not cut it before God. And that is precisely the free grace which is offered to us in the gospel. Good news of great joy for every kind of sinner. Rather than a conditional commercial offer in exchange for cold hard cash. This idea may be derided by some commentators as rejecting papal indulgences and replacing them with a Protestant superindulgence. It may sound too good to be true, but that is the message which fired the imaginations and the martyrdoms of those whose lives were gripped by the Reformation. They literally went to the stake for it. They went to the ends of the earth to proclaim it. They preached and wrote with passion about it. So in the midst of all the tragedies of the Reformation, it's here that we find the triumph. But we also find another tragedy, which we've already alluded to already, the division of the church. That's with this we should close, really. The Pope spoke recently about the Reformation, Pope Francis, and he said, we must look with love and honesty at our past, recognising error and seeking forgiveness, for God alone is our judge. We ought to recognise with the same honesty and love that our division distracted us, or distanced us rather, from the primordial intuition of God's people who naturally yearned to be one and that it was perpetuated historically by the powerful of this world rather than the faithful people which always and everywhere needs to be guided surely and lovingly by its good shepherd. He said, with gratitude we acknowledge that the Reformation helped give greater centrality to sacred scripture in the church's life. And of Luther, he wrote, with the concept of grace alone, he reminds us that God always takes the initiative prior to any human response, even as he seeks to awaken that response. So his practical conclusion in this anniversary year is that we have a new opportunity to accept a common path. We cannot be resigned to the division and distance that our separation has created between us. We have the opportunity to mend a critical moment of our history by moving beyond the controversies and disagreements that have often prevented us from understanding one another. 
But I want to say that the tragedy is that Rome, the entire Roman Catholic system that is centred on the Pope, failed then and fails now to grasp what it was really all about. Yes, we do yearn to be one with all Christians. Indeed, we actually are one with all Christians. We are one with them in Christ by faith. Whatever institutional differences there may be between us. Some of my best friends are Baptists. We are one in Christ by faith, regardless of our denominational differences. We don't need a single institution. Faith alone, you see, is what unites us to Christ, not the Pope, not the Archbishop of Canterbury, not membership of any human institution. And united to Christ, the Good Shepherd, he will lead us as we hear his voice in the scriptures, rejecting the stinking puddles of human traditions and false authorities. God does not simply take the initiative and then hope and pray that this will awaken a response in us. There will be no response unless he also regenerates us and we are born again. Until that happens, all we can do is sin, says Luther. We have no power to do good works, pleasant and acceptable to God, without the grace of God by Christ preventing us, going before us, that we may have a good will and working with us when we have that goodwill, says Article 10 of the Church of England's 39 Articles. So we cannot walk a common path with those who reduce the power of God's grace or make scripture sit alongside tradition as a rival authority. We cannot move beyond all these controversies because they are the hinge on which everything turns, the vital spot. They exist precisely because we do understand each other, or at least we have done in the past. There's no point at all in nowadays creating such vagueness about these things that we can pretend we actually agree about them after all when we don't. It was the gospel that created the divisions of the 16th century, not the Protestants who rejected the superstitions and tyrannies of the past. Not even the powerful elites who wanted to maintain the status quo by persecuting them. What happened is, light came into the world, but people loved the darkness. A familiar story, and a gut-wrenchingly painful one at times. We overcome darkness with love and patience, and by shining the light of the gospel into it, not pretending that the shade isn't too bad after all. Another great slogan sometimes used in relation to the Reformation was Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda Secundum Verbum Dei. Reformed churches are always in need of being reformed by the word of God. And theologians should always reform things and make themselves speak in English, not Latin. This is why we must not rest on our laurels but continue going back to the Bible in every generation, including ours. The same truths that changed the course of history 500 years ago are still capable of changing lives today as people turn to Christ alone for their salvation, identity and hope in repentance and faith. So despite all the lamentable tragedies of that era, I think we should be thankful to God 
for those who lived by this motto in days gone by, for the clarity of their testimony to the truth that was often sealed in their blood and ashes. And let's pray that it would again be heard in the Church of England loud and clear. This month, the Church of England remembered William Tyndale, who was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English on October the 6th, 1536. And the collect that Friday was this, Lord, give to your people grace to hear and keep your word, that after the example of your servant, William Tyndale, we may not only profess your gospel, but also be ready to suffer and die for it, to the honour of your name. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. I don't know if we've got time for questions, Carrie. Tell me. Two questions. Two questions is what we're allowed. I was told in the Roman Catholic Church a couple of days ago that you can't be confirmed unless you've been christened. Is that true? Yes, that would be pretty standard in all um, main, main churches, I think. You can't be confirmed until you've already been baptised. Confirmation is a confirmation of the baptismal promises made on your behalf when you were a child, when you were baptised as an infant. So confirmation naturally comes after baptism. Similarly, the Lord's Supper must come after baptism and, and, the, and confirmation. It would be very disordered to have the Lord's Supper before you were baptised and, and before you were confirmed, but certainly before you were baptised. I can't think of anywhere in church history where people would be given the Lord's Supper before they were baptised, although it does happen nowadays in some places. But Good question. Any other questions, comments? Bits of dead cat? Just Tunbridge Wells after all. No? Go on, be brave. No? Fine. Thank you for your attentiveness and good questions. Lee, thank you so much. I'm very, very grateful to you. And um, you bring alive these um, truths in ways that I wish my history teacher had at school. Um, I once wrote a, a letter, uh, an essay six points of Calvinism <laughs> that spelt turnip <laughs> and I thought it was very clever but in fact I was, I was thoroughly wrong because they're only five and they spelled tuna but anyway I thought it was but if you'd been my history teacher I would have learned a lot more so I'll have a chat with you later yeah. <laughs> right well um, those of you who are part of the morning congregation you'll know that we've been looking at the, the five solos over the last couple of weeks and um, uh, Craig has 